On episode 51, we're going to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act and specifically the tax credits that are going to be helpful to you as a fitness coach. We'll dive into one myth about the new IRS funding. Then we'll talk about how the electric car credit works. And at the end, we'll talk about the ways to save taxes by improving your home. As always, if this episode brings you value or helped you with your finances, please do me a favor and share it. Thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome to Build Your Wealth Muscle, a podcast dedicated to helping fitness entrepreneurs build wealth by saving taxes and growing their money. Each episode will break down different strategies in the areas of business, tax, and retirement planning specifically for your coaching business. Disclaimer, the topics covered in this podcast are for educational purposes only. This is not advice for your specific situation please consult a qualified financial or tax professional before making any changes to your financial or tax situation. Now here's your host, certified financial planner and tax advisor, Pat Darby. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Hope you had a great weekend. As I'm recording this, it's a Monday, so you'll hear it on Wednesday. But today I wanted to to dive deeper into this Inflation Reduction Act and specifically what's important for you, the fitness coach. Before we do that, I just want to remind everyone, if this is your first time listening, welcome. We really appreciate you joining us. And uh, there's two show formats. There's solo episodes, which is like today, where we can dive really deep into specific topics related to finance, tax, investing, wealth management, anything that I specifically can give you the expertise, dive pretty deep and give you action steps and my recommendations, things like that. Then we also have episodes where we bring on a guest and they're typically in areas of expertise that are outside of mine or they're a coach just like yourself and they talk about some of the things they've done right and some of the mistakes they've made and how you can learn from those. But again, today's episode is going to be a deep dive into the Inflation Reduction Act. So, and specifically the areas I think are beneficial or useful for you to understand. So let's dive right in with some highlights. So a lot of what we're hearing in terms of the actual tax increase doesn't really impact you as a coach. I mean, I'm going to move through some of these kind of quickly because at the end, I want to go over the tax credits that I think are going to be more impactful to you. And I want to give you some of those details. And there's a lot. So I will caveat if you're looking to use the credits that we're going to discuss later, and I'm sure I'll say this again, talk to your tax advisor, get some details because there's a ton of things and provisions here. Like most of the tax code, it's like, here's the rule and here's 50 exceptions and things like that. But I'm going to do my best to give you some of that detail here, but it's probably going to feel overwhelming in a way. So that's why I'm saying that if this is something you're considering, sit down with your tax strategist because your specific situation is going to need some some calculator calculations. So the first part is, and probably the most controversial, depending on who you, you know, at least the, the news related people, <laughs> I almost called them the media, but yeah, anyway, I'm not going to go too deep in that down that rabbit hole. But so what, so the first one is a 15% tax. Like that's not, I do think that's actually getting mislabeled in that it, this happens for companies, I believe it at over a billion dollars in profit. And it's not going to, I mean, if that's, if that's you listening, that's a great problem to have. My issue with that is, so again, if you're listening and you're an LLC or sole proprietorship 
or an S corp or partnership, this is not going to impact you from a tax perspective. What I don't like about it is they, from a marketing perspective, called this the Inflation Reduction Act. And I don't see how reducing the profit margins of corporations, it helps with inflation. Like you're a business owner. If someone, your expenses are likely going up because of the recession and the inflation as we're, as I'm recording this to protect your profit margin, some of you are probably increasing your pricing or finding ways to, to make sure that you have enough for, for your personal side and for the business. And so the, these large corporations are no different. So I don't, I just don't like that they're doing this August, 2009. The last thing you want to do quote, the last thing you want to do is to raise taxes in the middle of a recession. You would think that was said by someone like Trump. Maybe he did, but in August, 2009, that was said by Barack Obama, president Obama. So the fact that now we're in a recession and Biden's doing this makes no sense to me. Like his, you know, it's pretty clear that when things are going poorly, you try not to raise taxes. So that's my little soapbox on that. The second component there is they're raising an excise tax. They're putting an excise tax on stock buybacks. Again, that doesn't really apply to most people listening here that are full-time running a business. Now we'll talk about the fairly controversial about all the funding going to the IRS that's been talked about by most people. And one thing that I'll point out, I don't believe that 87,000 new agents number is actually something that was said in the legislation. They're getting about $45 billion for enforcement of that 80 billion, about 45, I believe is going towards enforcement. But I don't believe they've actually put a number on how many new agents there would be. So that might be some fake news by the left and the right. But just so you're aware, the IRS is run pretty inefficiently. Their, their computer system, don't hold me to this exact year, but I believe their computer system that the IRS is working off of is still based on 1962 computing technology. So they are, from an infrastructure perspective, they do need to come into modern day. So I am not opposed to that side of the funding because that money is being broken into taxpayer services, which again, if you or anybody that you know, ever like your accountant or whoever has ever tried to interact with the IRS, it's very difficult. And so if they improve that, that would be really helpful for everybody. Because again, at the end of the day, you are paying for your tax preparer, your accountant. If, if you have an issue, you're paying for their time. So if it takes them two hours on hold, and that's not an exaggeration, if you ever try to call the IRS, it's that's typical hold times. That's not such a bad thing that you get that opportunity to streamline that, maybe do more with portals and technology and worse. Like, I don't know if you saw a few months ago, the IRS stopped automating certain notifications from going out because what was happening is you would get a letter saying whatever, you would give it to your accountant, your accountant would do what they needed to do either with you or with the IRS, send it back in on your behalf. And then you would receive another letter saying the exact same thing. And oftentimes that second letter was because it was being automatically generated, having not even noticed that you corresponded with it already. 
causing you to go back to your accountant. Maybe they do it again. Maybe they start over stressing you out because you think that no one's helping you. So they're just massive inefficiencies that should be addressed. So by no means am I saying, hey, I am excited for the IRS to have a ton of more money. I do think they need to get more efficient. <laughs> Hopefully, it's used properly. So again, there's tax. the funding was broken into taxpayer services, enforcement, which everyone's aware of the enforcement part, operations support, business systems, modernization. Now, again, I don't know the details of like where the IT comes into that, like the taxpayer services versus business systems, and then a task force for e-filing. You might hear down the road a lot of tax people talking about like free file. That's one of the things I will actually agree with some of the crazy socialists like Elizabeth Warren that most people don't really need a complicated tax return. You know, I think I think they said 70% of the country would file using quote unquote, what's called free file. Basically, you'd be able to log in, see what the IRS has on you. And if you're a W-2 employee that has a very simple return, and right now you're paying hundreds of dollars to an accountant or H&R Block or TurboTax, whatever it is, you could just log into the IRS. They would be like, this is your income, true or false. You would you know, check off true, like under perjury, if whatnot, and then you just be done. Because again, like most people that file their taxes, they have a job, they don't have a business, and it's very straightforward. So free file would allow you to sort of cut out the middleman and all the complication and the costs and just say, hey, this is, yes, my salary is 100K. This is what my taxes are. You sign it. So if that goes through and that's implemented. I actually think that'd be great for everybody. I don't consider it a threat considering I don't work with the regular W2 people, but so again, I don't I don't want to demonize the fact that they're getting money as much as some people have already. You know, politically speaking, I am not a Biden supporter. I am not a leftist supporter. Most people listening probably are aware of that. But so if they, the trend that stresses people like myself out is, are they going to increase audits uniformly or will there be some political leaning to who these extra agents are targeting? That's a concern. But moving away from the politics, the, the next portion of it is, is really about prescription drug pricing reform. Well, I shouldn't, I probably should step back because I like the idea of drug pricing reform. However, I think it's a very slippery slope of I'm trying to think how to phrase this. The medical technology and drugs come to market needs to be understood. And I'm not sure of that by any means. I am an expert on this, but I have a background I was pre-med. I spent a lot of time in medical sales in the operating room, working for medical device companies before I entered into finance. And also we've done, when I spent two years in private equity, raising money for these companies in the med space and stuff like that. Like it was a lot of different spaces, but where I'm going with that is when you're bringing a drug to, to market or you're bringing a new medical device to market, the vast majority never make it 
because of it wasn't as safe as people expected. It didn't do what people expected, whatever it is. So the process of bringing something from an idea to the market and through all the regulations, there's a million times for it to fail. And so it takes a lot of capital. And so for those who want to put money up, they are facing an extremely risky investment. So you have to think about it from your perspective as a business owner. Your fitness business is kicking ass. You're looking for opportunities to deploy your money into other investments. And someone comes to you with a new medical device that they say is amazing. You might agree that it's amazing, but they're like, all right, put half a million dollars into this. And you're looking at it and you know that, and let's say you've done your due diligence and you realize the vast majority of these things fail. So you're in an extremely, extremely risky investment opportunity. That's more than likely, statistically speaking, more than likely that $500,000 you, you invest is going to go to zero. But if it doesn't, it could go to multi-millions, if not way more than that, if, it's the, if it truly is the next best thing. So you have to understand if they put regulations that are too strict in place and say, and I got, I know I'm sort of switching from medical device to drugs. And that's also because I'm trying to pull the conversation away from big pharma, which I think most people listening that are really into the health space and what we've been through for the last two years, we don't trust big pharma even, I mean, I don't know how many people did before, but I think the trust is, it's fair to say it's weaning, but Let's, let's stay the course on this example. If you, if someone comes to you now with that same investment opportunity, they say, Hey, I need $500,000 from you. And you know, the risks, the risks don't change, but now that 500 grand, they say, Hey, you know, based on these projections, it could be worth $10 million in 10 years because you know, this is our exit strategy. Once we get approved and blah, 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 blah. So what you as the investor now have that, that decision to make, the risk return, like the risk is extremely high, but the return is extremely high. If the government gets involved and starts putting caps on the health space, the challenge is now the, the, op the risk stays the same, but your return plummets. So now that the person running the investment opportunity or the, the invention that, that they're trying to bring to market has to come to you and say, yeah, we still need your half a million dollars, but if everything goes great, we'll turn it into a million. And you'll be like, well, what doubling my money in 10 years and the chance of it going to zero is far greater. More than likely you'll, you'll probably, most people walk away from those type of opportunities. So that's the risk and having the government come in and, and try to mandate these health costs because what that really ends up doing is it dries up the other side, which is the research and development and innovation, because that's all funded by, for the most part, private investors who are taking a huge, huge risk. Because again, most of these are going to go to zero. So when they talk about how, you know, drug reform and senior citizens and things like that, I get it, but that's actually not the solution. I'm not going to go down the road, but it's really the insurance companies that are meddling too much in this. But that's a major problem for me is that the government should not be coming in because it's 
its ripple effect is greater than what the media is putting on it because it's really the investment side that gets impacted when the government starts capping the profitability on the on the back end because in a in a free market society you do want to come out the other end and then be able to kill it if you've done everything right you've your technology is amazing it's safe it's effective blah 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 all the things that any business owner should be hoping for and then once they get that level of optimization there should be no cap on the upside that's capitalism that's what i truly believe in okay so that's the drug stuff again it's not really important but as since this is a podcast about taxes and wealth management and things like that i had to bring that up that i don't like where that could impact us in the long run with killing new ideas so the next one I actually like, even though it's it's similar to what we just talked about, the, the health space. Obamacare tax credits were extended for, so for people who are unaware how the tax credits work, if you don't have, and this is another reason, if, if someone tells you that healthcare is, there's no free healthcare, it's bullshit. Apply for Medicare, or sorry, apply for Medicaid and or tax credits. So if you have low or no income, that's not an excuse to talk about health insurance because for the low and no income, these, these systems exist. I think the challenge is people don't know how to apply for it. That's a separate issue. I get that the lack of information is a problem, but the system actually has this. And you and I listening, if you have health insurance and you feel like the premium is very high, this is why, because we are helping to pay for people who can't afford it, which whether you like that or don't like that, that's a separate issue. I don't personally like having a really high monthly fee or premium, but I don't mind the fact that I know that people who can't afford it have the opportunity to get it. But I don't like that mine's higher and I have to listen to people that are liberals say that health insurance isn't free. Because it's like, well, yes, it is. And I'm paying for it. And so shut the hell up. <laughs> so... But what this does is, so there's a calculation that Obamacare essentially put in place where they don't want your insurance to be more than about 8.5% of what you pay, or I'm sorry, what you make in gross income. So there's a federal poverty line that this relies on. And before, if you made over that 400% above the federal poverty line, it would push you out of the ability to get some credits. Now it's saying that it's based on the size of your family, not on that federal poverty line. So if you have the way health insurance is priced is by, per, by person. So an individual who makes $30,000 a year versus a family of three with that same income, it's all the premiums combined to make sure that that's not more than eight and a half percent of their income. And then the Obamacare tax credits step in. So again, I used, when I was in New Jersey, I used to be in a, I forget what the name of it is, but like an, an advisor or broker on the Obamacare system that was educational, but it, I ended up pulling my name from that list just because the the inbound calls were getting overwhelming but but my 
my point is that this is this is actually nice because I, I do think that the system was put in place to help people, but it didn't really account for all the variables. So I like this, even though, you know, we can we can debate again, like the previous one, the health insurance companies are part of the bigger problem here that drive the costs higher for everybody. And so I would like to see the system fix rather than just trying to make it easier for people to pay what they decided to charge us. It's similar to the debate. If you have a a strong opinion on student loans, it's very similar. It's like the government's getting involved to fight and we all fight with each other about the cost and like who's going to pay these tuition and the debt and stuff. And often on the left out of the conversation is why are we all subsidizing the tuition increases? Why doesn't the government stop subsidizing that and let the market value of what that education is set the tuition? So healthcare is the same, has the same thing. We're health insurance companies and the government are stepping in and trying to find ways to help people pay the premiums, not saying, why are these costs so high? Okay, maybe we step out and let the free market decide. Because if you look at the procedures that are not covered by insurance, like most of the cosmetics, LASIK, things like that, they're typically coming down in price because technology is helping the free market, the competition is pricing. And then you look at the side that is covered. Those prices are skyrocketing over the last few decades. So just something to keep in mind, not something that we were planning really to dive into. But since we're about 23 minutes in or so, let's get into what I think is actually the the part of the Inflation Reduction Act that is going to be beneficial to you guys or that you're going to consider using. And these are the energy tax credits. So the first one is a car tax credit. So originally it was it was named like the new qualified plug-in electric drive motor vehicle. Now it's called the clean vehicle credit. So so we dropped it down to just three simple words. So here's how this one works. If you have an electric vehicle, the, this is how the this sorry, I was looking at the really long name and lost my train of thought. So this this plan was in there and it got updated in two ways. One, the name I just said. It also eliminated a weird provision that they had where it was based on the number of vehicles sold by the manufacturer. And from what i done from my research, it really only impacted Tesla and I believe GM. But anyway, now that, that provision's gone. So there is no cap on the number of vehicles that can be involved. There is a an important provision. And I, I'm cool with this. The vehicle must have its final assembly in North America. And the list the, the government came out with a list of all those vehicles that qualify. And I'm going to drop that link in the show notes. So you can click that and see which vehicles they've deemed to have final assembly in North America. So for a brand new vehicle, the credit is, is as high as $7,500. Now it's broken down into two categories. There is battery capacity, which you have up to a $5,000 credit and a mineral requirement, which is about $3,750. So those two combine 
can equal your full 7,500, even though those two numbers don't add up to 7,500. Based on the, the percentages of each that qualify, you can get up to that 7,500. Your credit is allowed once per vehicle. Now, here's the part that will probably be a problem for a lot of people listening is there is an income phase out on this. So for single individuals, you can't use this if your income is above 150000 For married filing joint, it's 300000 So that might be a problem for people listening. If you're making a lot of money and you're like, oh, cool, like I need some tax credits to chop down my income. This isn't going to help the people in the top brackets. So there's also a price limitation. SUVs and trucks can't be more than 80000 The cars can't be more than 55000 In 2024, I guess this credit will be transferred to the dealer to make it easier. I don't know how that will actually work because, you know, I don't know how that will work in, in practicality because obviously this is based on your income and all these different things. At the dealership, you're going to have to bring your tax returns. That might be kind of cumbersome, but who knows? Maybe it'll actually be easier. So then, but here's a a new one that's pretty cool. And I actually like this a lot. And and I hope that people take into consideration. Now they've also extended to used cars. I regret that my car, I leased it and then purchased a lease. That was a terrible mistake. And I, I preach a lot that most of the things I help people with are the mistakes I've made. So I would never buy new again, that's just my personal preference because I'm not a I'm not a car guy. For anyone who loves cars, you know, disregard my advice completely in that regard. I just don't value a car. I just need it to get from point A to point B, and I just don't want it to be unsafe or crappy. So I'm pretty medium with when it comes to what I drive. So I would want to go used just to let that initial massive drop in value happen to somebody else and not me. <laughs> so now they've extended this credit to use vehicles, which I think is pretty awesome. So you can't do it yet. The the purchase of a used vehicle put in service after the end of this year. So after 1231-22 and before the end of 2032. So the the credit is the lesser of $4,000 or 30% of the sales price. And the sales price is limited to $25,000. The $25,000 mark, I don't know enough about electric cars to know how many would even fit into that category, but I, that's, that's the limit. The transaction must be through a dealer. So again, I, I think that's probably a decent rule. So it eliminates you trying to sell your car to your friend and then they get a tax credit. So it must be through a legitimate dealer. And like the the new car credit, there's income phase outs. And these are fairly low in my opinion. So I'll just dive in. For single individuals, 75,000. Married filing joint, 150,000. So unfortunately, I feel like most people listening to this, that's that's not gonna work for them. So it's kind of a bummer. Additional requirements for the used cars, it, it must be a model that's at least two years older than the calendar year when a taxpayer acquires it. The original use started with the person other than the taxpayer, blah, blah. So, and then your dependents, or if you are a dependent of somebody else, you're not eligible for this credit. So that's the car, the electric car credit. Let's move on to the next one that I think is going to be helpful to you, which is 
a credit for making your home appliances more efficient. So it's called the Energy Efficient Home Improvement Credit. So this is going to include anything, any properties that are put in service in your home before one one thirty three. So we have 10 years for this. And it increased the original credit from 10% to 30% of the amount incurred. So this is going to include two components. The energy improvements installed, like the price, the amount you paid for the installment, and then the amount of the energy cost expenditures during that year. That's what makes up the 30%. Now, originally there was a lifetime cap, and I believe it was $500. Now you have an annual limit of $1,200, which essentially means you can spend about forty or sorry, $4,000 a year, and 30% of that, you'll cap it out at $1,200. Now, I don't see any guidance for this stuff being rolled forward. So where I'm going with that is if, if in one particular year you spend $10,000, you're capped at 1200 and you don't get anything the next year. So you might want to be strategic with it. If you're only going to get $1,200 a year, and again, based on the math, you can only use up to $4,000 because it's 30% of what you spend. You may decide if you have $10,000 worth of appliances that you want to do or <clears throat> doors and things like that, windows, like all those things that you were thinking of doing, you might strategically want to spread that out over two or three years so that you can maximize this credit each year. And that's nothing, I'm not going to dive into it, but there is specific limitations on what the thing that you're improving is like an appliance versus a door versus a window. They've actually set prices on all this. So that's why if you're going to go down this road, speak with your accountant or if the person that's making those improvements, it's a good chance they're studying this since it's obviously going to motivate people to use their services. Get a really detailed explanation of like what each improvement will cost and then compare it to the cap in that specific category for you. I have it in front of me. So let's read one. It's like uh, you get $250 for one door or 500 for more than one door. Heat pumps, water cooler, water, I'm sorry, water heaters, boilers, stoves. It's capped at 2000 windows and skylights are capped at 600. So you see, it's like there's multiple categories that are also capped. So there's going to be a lot of calculations to see what you can actually pull together. It's not just um, everything in one. So again, I would, I would look into doing this over multiple years. If you're, if you want to do a lot to your home. All right. Now last credit, and hopefully I've, this has not been super overwhelming, but the last credit is basically your, your solar panels type of credit, the residential clean energy credit. So if this one's a complicated one, so I didn't put a lot of the details in because there, this was already on the books but it was set to expire in 2024. So everything's been extended until 2035. So you can get essentially almost 30% of your money back in these for things that were put in service between 2019 
and the end of this year. And then it staggers down over the next essentially 13 years, dropping all the way down to essentially 22% on the low end. So that's, that's great. Again, like those, those energy credits, I think they're great. And so I'll just say this, like I do with everything that when I talk about the tax code, these energy credits, everything we talked about, I think it's important that you keep the, the, in mind the run rule of thumb that I talk about a lot. And I think a lot of tax people do. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that because some tax people are stupid. But you shouldn't get a tax deduction or a tax credit on something that's not something you plan to purchase anyway. So again, like going into... If you make it like walking through the mall, if if you don't like Rolex watches and Rolex says, hey, this $10,000 watch is 25% off. Maybe that's a bad example because you could resell it, but stick with me. It doesn't make any sense to spend $7,500 on a watch you don't want just to get a 25% discount. Again, excluding the fact that maybe in that scenario, you go and flip it for like 9K or something because that's... That's not what we're talking about here. In my opinion, tax credits, tax deductions, all that, if it's bringing, if it's something you're going to purchase anyway in your personal life or in your business, if it's going to bring you a return on your investment, I love it. It's a home run. That's why some of it's so important to me when I'm working with clients to help them bring their personal expenses that they're already spending their money on and turn them into legitimate business expenses. Rather than at the end of the year saying, hey, you've you've made an extra $100,000 in profits from last year, so your tax bill is going to be higher, let's start buying useless shit that will just chop your, your, uh, your tax liability down. That doesn't do them any good because, again, I would rather pay – I'd rather pay the taxes and keep the money versus spending it on something useless. And so that's what I think should be the overarching theme of some of these credits. If you have a car and you're happy with it and it's not an electric vehicle, going out and spending $60,000 on a new car or 55000 to hit the limit that you on a car you don't need or that you didn't really need to extend it for a few more years, I don't know if that's the best use of a tax strategy. So I just want to end with that, that getting a tax credit for something you didn't really need to purchase and you didn't really want to purchase, you just did it just for the tax deduction. It doesn't have any ROI for your business. I wouldn't recommend doing that because on the high end, on the federal side, our tax percentage right now is 37. So you still get to keep the other 60 and change could be slightly less based on some of the other things that phase in if you're a super high earner, but you get the idea. So hopefully this has been helpful. I've been meaning to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act for a little while, but I wanted to compile this information for you first. And as always, if this brought you value, or if you have specific questions, please DM me or you can email me at info at darbba.com. But as always, I hope you have a great week and thanks again for listening. Thank you for joining us this week on Build Your Wealth Muscle. The links mentioned in this episode are available in the show notes. 
offer video clips and more information on tax and retirement strategies for fitness entrepreneurs, please follow my Instagram at the Pat Darby. If you found value in this episode, please do us a favor and share with a friend. If you tag me, that'd be appreciated also. Lastly, for help implementing any of the topics discussed, please book a call. The link is also in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and have a great day.